Hello everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host Cooper Wilhelm and today I am standing in an alcove in the main branch of the New York City Public Library which is the one with the stone lions out front that they recently cleaned with lasers. I have a lovely show for you today which will mostly be my interview with Ashton of Black Unicorn Tarot but before we get to that Astrologer Frank Civilli is back with more astro weather and magical advice for taking advantage of the changing skies. Here's Frank. Hey Cooper, hey all, I'm Frank Civilli. I'm an astrologer, a witch, a poet, and a diviner based out of Queens, New York, and I'm here to give you some guidance and some elections for working the stars in the weeks ahead. I do Hellenistic and archetypal astrology, I use whole sign houses, and I work with the tropical zodiac. It's also worth noting that all of my elections will be from New York City and in Eastern Time. Okay, so let's look at some elections for the weeks ahead. First, I want to look at the full moon in Gemini. So you can start this work anytime while the moon is still in Gemini. But the election I'm going to look at is for the exact full moon in New York City. And that in particular is going to be on Thursday, December 12th, 2019 at 12.17 a.m. Eastern. So we'll have Virgo Ascendant, and with the moon in Gemini, we should note that both Gemini and Virgo are ruled by Mercury, so this very mercurial full moon. The moon at this time will be in the 10th house, which is high in the middle of the midnight sky. It's actually going to be the only planet that's visible, and that's going to be opposite the sun, obviously, because that's a full moon, in Sagittarius, in the 4th house, who's down in the underworld. So this is an interesting reversal of the places of the luminary here. Usually we see the sun, who likes being above the horizon, and the moon, who likes being below. In the context of Gemini, the twins, I think that's worth thinking with. Archetypally, that makes this a full moon about the reflections we cast and how we might dialogue with them. So now let's put some of that together. What I see is a time to put the great dreams and words of the past six months into action. Take stock of the projects you've been thinking on and the lands you've walked since then. This is a time for wanderers to settle, start to vocalize and concretize some of the experiences that you've accumulated since the new moon that happened in Gemini back in June, specifically June 3rd, 2019. It's also worth noting that Mercury is in Sagittarius, the house of their exile. So think too with some of the things that have felt harder to accomplish since that last new moon. Is it time to drop some of those goals or re-coordinate the plot points? It's something to consider. And this working can be done in any way that you observe the full moon. Consider this a good time for tricksters in particular to show their double faces among the ranks of the wild hunt. And for our second election, I want to look at Venus's ingress into Aquarius. This will be happening on Friday, December 20th, 2019, around noon Eastern. But the election I want to focus on is actually going to be later that night. The perfect election will be at 2.10 a.m. Eastern, because that's when the moon will be on the ascendant. But if you don't want to stay up that late, I don't blame you. So you can start any time after about 12.15 a.m. Eastern. The reason I like this election is because Venus will be in Aquarius, finally free of some of the tormenting influences of the malefics in Capricorn. And as she enters Aquarius, we find her in her own Deccan right away, which is really positive. It means that some of the helping Venusian spirits are more easy to hand. Uh, we can call on them and work with them in greater strength. So the moon will be in Libra, which is another Venus-ruled sign, and this feels particularly soothing. It's a time of cool, dark night air, so breathe it in. What makes this chart so lovely is that Venus is going to be in the fifth house, which is the house of her joy. Calm yet electric Venus feelings abound, and you can use this opportunity to take full advantage. It's a good time for any general Venus work you may want to do, maybe some loving and some cleansing after Venus's stroll through Capricorn, and that might mean lots of fumigation and singing, intoning, or breath work. Try working with some older Venusian spirits as well, perhaps spirits of femme ancestors. You can take some time to listen to those ancestors who are never able to truly speak words of love. Compose a love poem for them on their behalf and recite it aloud. And that's all I've got for you this time. So I hope you found this useful. Be safe out there. You could find me on Instagram at anti.bishop for commentary or questions. And I always welcome discussion and feedback, so feel free to reach out. And until next time, be well. Thank you to Frank. Up next, we have my chat with Ashton of Black Unicorn Tarot. Ashton is a tarot reader, sex magician, and practitioner of Lakumi, which is also known as Santeria. We had a lovely chat about tarot, sex magic, NYC versus NOLA, and their personal magical journey. It was a really wonderful time, and I'm, I'm very, very pleased to bring it to you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for being on. Um, yeah. So... I think of you as someone with a lot of wisdom and a lot of 
expertise, but I really, in this interview, really want to focus on just, like, the journey of you as a magical person, if that's cool. Perfect. I'd love to talk about that. But um, before we get to that, there is one piece of expertise. Actually, there are two sort of, like, shop talk kind of questions I want to throw at you, and I just want to, like, I want to make sure we don't forget them. On your site, you mentioned that you use a number of different decks when you're doing tarot readings. Mm-hmm. And from the language on the site, I got the sense that these are, there's something about the decks where you tend to sort of choose a deck based on the person you're reading for. Mm-hmm. Is there, could you talk a little bit about like that kind of idea of like the deck as another way of personalizing or specializing the, the, the reading? Absolutely. So my experience with tarot traditionally in the traditional set of tarot, i.e. like the Rider Waite deck or the Toth deck, um, it is not extremely accessible to all of my clients who are particularly uh, people of color, trans people, queer people, sex workers, etc. So the different decks that I use, I try to use them in a way to encompass and incorporate the people who I'm reading. So, for instance, Next World Tarot by Christy Road, it is yeah. just a spectacular, beautiful deck. And I find that because there are so many queer images in the deck, that it's mm-hmm. really helpful to read queers with that deck because they can connect, right? Another one of my favorite decks, particularly for sex workers, is the Sluttus Tarot. But mm-hmm. I also use the Sluttus Tarot for my kinky clients because there are fantastic, phenomenal sex-positive energies about alternative bodies and alternative ways of having sex. And that empowers me as someone who's also part of the kinky community, right? Yeah. But if I have clients who are people of color, are Black, are looking at their ancestral roots, Dust Onyx Tarot okay. uh, by Courtney Alexander. I was gifted this as part of a let's give practitioners some cards to actually read with. And her deck is just so phenomenal. The images are so beautiful. And they capture a very specific black ancestry that I wanna make sure that I have accessible for my clients. So the different decks, though I bring them at my events, I bring them to my shops where I read, um, I have them in my home. Yes, I do pick different decks for different people. But I just do that so that I can continue to make tarot an accessible means of divination for all of my clients. That's amazing. I love that. Do you have, so like if someone were, I don't know, let's, let's say they're ground level beginner, they're just trying to get into this sort of thing. Do you have a good suggestion for finding a deck that connects with them besides just like looking at a bunch of them? Yeah. So I learned tarot on the Toth deck. And yeah. if you are familiar with the Toth deck, it's actually fairly abstract in terms of standard decks. So I would not recommend <laughs> learning on the Toth deck, right? Yeah. I would recommend starting with the Rider Waite because the images are very clear. We're discovering so much more about the author of Rider Waite. She was also a woman of color, and that was very quieted for a very long time. The images are very simple, and also the meanings are very straightforward. So it's easier to learn and work on that deck. But I tell anyone who's coming to tarot, you know, go to tarot shops, see what decks you are drawn to and purchase them and just start getting your body familiar, you know, getting your hands familiar with the deck because the deck, you know, itself has this whole life, this whole story. And you're the reader seeing the story of yourself or your client. So you just want to make sure that you have a connection to the cards themselves. But a lot of the very cool new decks that are coming out, they're very non-traditional. So it's hard to really learn basic tarot on that. But I, I tell a lot of my clients too, you know, I was given my first tarot deck after I was read for the first time. So getting a tarot deck as a gift is just wonderful energy for someone to see something in you to give it to you. But yeah. also, there's something about being really intentional and trusting your gut about what deck you're led to and letting it lead you into what reading that divination form looks like. How important do you think it is for people to get a foundation in sort of the standard set of meanings for tarot before they really start doing it intuitively? Because, I mean, like, I think some people, they they really trust it as really like a system of sort of it, right? Where yeah. it's almost like something closer to like geomancy or the I Ching where you, you get something and then you look at a book and the book tells you what's going to happen and you don't like, you're almost not part of it. 
And I think there are some people who say this is like, they use it almost like a, like a talking board or a Ouija board where, you know, this is just a way of making the flow of energy through you into something slightly more specific or legible or something like that. Like where, where does that, ba- where do you strike that balance? Like as a reader and as someone talking to people who are or would be readers? Well, here's the thing. If you are already intuitive, and by that I mean you are able to pick up on things that are coming, you are able to see present and future in your dreams, in your dialogues, in your writing, you already have the ability to be intuitive. So it actually doesn't matter what type of divination form you touch to communicate that intuitiveness. So... I definitely think that everybody should have a very like blanketed idea of what each card means, right? That's where the book comes in handy. But I just warn people not to use the book as a crutch because part of what I do is that I'm connecting myself to the story of the cards and then I'm checking upstairs, i.e. all of the spirits, guides, and ancestors that I speak to. If you're so stuck on making sure that you know every single card and its meaning, you're never going to get to that point where you actually are starting to trust your gut instinct. Because as I've been reading over and over again, the cards have the same meaning, but they mean something different for every person in the reading. So Mm -hmm. I have to let go of my attachment and my safety blanket of the book that that deck comes with. And just allow myself to just access whatever it is that is part of your intuitive network and channeling so that you can read the cards, right? So I know there are a lot of like witches that are like, you need to study for 14 years. Totally, right? All of us should be doing our work. But I don't think that people should be limiting themselves as a result of following a very finite structure about what the cards mean, what they're supposed to say, because it kind of can trip you up when you're starting to just open up and trust your own intuition. Right. Like I don't have permission or something like that. to Right. And you know, this is also another thing that I'm, I'm encountering with my clients. A lot of my POC clients are concerned about appropriating religious practices or spiritual beliefs or divination forms that are not in their lineage. The problem is, is that we don't always have a ton of access to our lineage. So we have to play. It yeah. gets tricky when the play becomes exploitation. There's a difference between I'm learning something and I'm trying some stuff out and I'm just going to see where that goes and build from there. That's different from I'm just going to say I'm good at a thing because I read a whole bunch of books and now charge people all this money and I have no connection to and I'm exploiting people. Right. Right. So that's kind of the balance of, you know, just being a decent human, (laughs) knowing what your limits are in terms of the way that you can advise and inform people. And, you know, being really clear about those boundaries as you're learning. So when you sort of dial in to the, the spirits that you're kind of checking in with when you're checking upstairs during these readings, are these spirits that, you know, you look over your shoulder and just like, here they are? Or are these <laughs> um, relationships that you like sought out and tried to cultivate? Like, for example, when I was sort of like thinking, let's do more spirit stuff with tarot. One of my first thoughts, I think, was going like, hey, Archangel Raphael, let's uh, let's do a little shrine to you. Let's do some stuff with you. Let's talk to you. But like sure. that was pretty much a, like looking in the phone book and calling someone as opposed to like. Yes, doing, like, making the connection. Yeah. Like, how did you, where did these spirits come from? Who said hi first? <laughs> Who said hi first? Well, I will say that my grandmother said hi first, right? Okay. I practice Santeria. It is more commonly known amongst practitioners as Lakumi. Yeah. So the first thing that my godmother in the practice, my madrina, told me to do was to get in touch with the closest ancestor that I've had. And that has been my grandmother. So I set up an altar for her. I started talking to her, working with her, hearing from her. And as with her in spirit, I was actually able to also get connections to other spirits that I look to practice with and ask of in my religion, right? We call them Orishas. So for instance, if I wanted to tell my clients about how to really get real deep down kind of in their dirty stuff, like if they're ready for that kind of reading where all the shit's being mucked up. I call on Olokun. Olokun is the Orisha of the 
the bottom of the ocean. All the secrets, all the treasures, all the slaves that jumped overboard. I mean, the bottom of the ocean, what the hell's going on down there? There are fish that can conduct electricity, right? Yes, yeah, terrifying down there. So in order, right, it's so horrifying. So in order for me to call on Olokun, I have to do the things that I need to do to feed that particular Orisha. So as I feed that Orisha, i.e. do my practices with them, um. I'm asking them to also guide me in my readings. And so they will show up and give me some messages that I need to give to my clients. So you actually, you cut out for a second in the Skype feed when you just said, when I do my practices with them and feed them, what came like mm -hmm. right after that? Feeding them, right. So feeding your spirits, your guide, or your orisha. There are specific orisha that like specific things. There are altars. So altars for these orisha and my health have an altar for my grandmother. But if we're just talking about like, reaching out to your ancestral energy. My grandmother, you know, she loves these types of flowers. She enjoys these types of candies. She, like every year for Christmas, she got an orange, right? Because she was just that poor. And that was the most valued treasured thing. So one of the things that I make sure that I do on Christmas is leave her an orange so that it's very clear that I'm connected to the lineage. I'm appreciating the fruits of the labor of the earth and offering that back to her as yeah. she's also guiding me. Um, that's what I, I love spirit, spirit, asking it to be in communication with you. You need to make an offering in order for them to come in and guide you. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. The other kind of like shop talk thing I wanted to bring up before we got into the sort of the life story and the transformations um, was, so you've done a lot of classes, you've written articles, you've sort of become like a, I think a very good expert on, on questions of sex magic and in particular, I think sort of like using sex magic to, to ground yourself in your own body or kind of learn to be kinder to yourself. What role can sex magic play in someone's overall, either like magical practice or even just like healing as a person? Yeah, that's a fantastic big question, right? So I know that a lot of the humans in my life who are queer, who are non-binary, who are differently gendered, they experience a lot of trauma on their body, right? So sex magic is a tool that can be used to deal with and work through that trauma with yourself and with others. So I think the biggest thing for me about bringing sex magic to my own practices is intentionality and safety. So okay. because I understand what it's like to create intention and spell work, it's super important for me to branch it into my sex. What do I want? What am I not okay with? What can I communicate? And what can't I communicate? And how do I have someone else understand where I'm at before I haven't even touched my body, right? I think sex magic can be used as a tool and as a way to do that. And in terms of sex magic and safety, I use the spiritual tools in my sex magic to elicit safe space for myself when I'm not necessarily feeling super safe. So for instance, I set up an altar a lot, just very small, right before I have sex, even if the person who I'm having sex is not setting up that altar with me, right? So for me, having a candle going while sex is happening a is a spiritual calling into of protection and safety but on a real note right i used to disassociate all the time while i was having sex so having a candle lit me back to a focal point so anytime that I'm off in the trauma land because it's touch walk i always look at the candle remember what my intention of that interaction was and just be calmed because something is drawing me back to being present so in my classes, I just like to highlight that, you know, we are all doing our work in terms of our anxieties, our traumas, our sexual assault histories, all of that. And magic can really be a blanket and a tool to really step into. Sorry, you're cutting. You're cutting out again a little bit there. Can you hear me? Okay, you're back. Marvelous. Okay. So... Unfortunately, I think I lost you just as you were making a really good point about the idea of... So you, you were saying you used to disassociate a lot during sex. 
the candle was a yeah. good focal point to bring you back, I think was where you were. Yes. Yes. The ca- candles were a great focal point in bringing me back because every time I let candle tension louder just to myself, right? I will light a candle and I'll say my intention of lighting this candle during this sex practice or this sex act is to be intentional and to be focused and present. So having a candle keeps me present. Anytime that I am triggered and I'm floating off while I'm having sex, I can always look back at my candle and know that that is what's grounding me. That's what's centering me. And I remember what my intention is. Want to get back to what my intention is, then it makes sex a little less of a nerve wracking and anxious thing. And I can actually work and move through it. So using a a tool that's so simple, like a candle, just to stay present is sort of the simple magic of sex magic. That's amazing. That's such a good tool, I think, for a lot of people to find out about. And an article you wrote for Venefica not super long ago was talking Mm. a little bit of like, rather than sex magic, like with a partner, sex magic sort of on your own. So how would you... Yeah. How would you... Would you apply basically the same principles to doing sex magic sort of on by yourself or would you approach it in a different way if it's just you i I think it really depends on the person right i take my masturbation practices pretty seriously right but i know that they exist on two planes right there's one plane where i just need to kind of like watch some porn jack off real quick go to sleep be out right there's another plane where I want to do some masturbation and self-pleasure work to really work through something, get present to something, or just have a really good orgasm just to release something. So that's a little bit more time consuming than the like porn jack off thing, right? It's more intentional. And I try to find a balance with both because sometimes my body needs to be raunchy in a human way. And sometimes my body needs to be raunchy in a spiritually centered way. So Mm. I try to find a balance between those two things. And I think what I'm finding in my classes is that a lot of people are, you know, struggling with just feeling comfortable with touching their own bodies. And that makes it very uncomfortable for anyone else to touch their bodies. So creating sacred space to even be okay with the way that you feel touching your own body so that you can communicate the way you want to be touched to others. Super, super important. Everybody is at their own different levels of their understanding of their bodies, but being alone with yourself and then also creating sacred space while you are alone gives you some uh, you know, room to actually explore what feels good without a lot of anxiety behind it. What would be a, a good way for someone to create a sacred space by themselves when approaching something like this? I always say a candle, right? Because whatever energy you want to bring in, you want to light the way. Yeah. A glass of water, right? In Santaria, water is used as a conduit for spirit, right? So that could be the intention of that glass of water that's out. But it also could just be the intention of getting connected to the elements, right? So we have fire, we have water, right? Earth, if you have crystals, a stone, a stick, something that gets you grounded, right? And air can be incense or a puff puff of whatever you puff puff on or, you know, whatever is relevant for you in terms of calling the corners when it comes to all of these great, amazing traits that the world offers us in terms of seeing things clearer, right? But I always tell people, you know, bring items that are personal to you, right? Because I have a stuffed animal that I need, I've got like, you know, this particular shell that means this to me, right? You want to bring yourself representative to the altar so that you are the one creating safe space. You are the one defining what that safe space looks like. And you're the ultimate creator and, you know, conductor of what that safe space does for you. That's really lovely. Um, so one of the, the, the threads that's sort of getting picked up here a little bit, I think, is this idea of using magic for healing yourself. Is that, mm-hmm. how central is that to your, to your magical practice? Like, is it, is it mostly like an inward thing or is it mostly like an outward thing? Like, where is that going? It's, it's very, it's a lot, like, I would say like, it's maybe 40% an outward thing, 60% an inward thing, right? Yeah. It's so interesting that we're even having this call at this time because I am dealing with some pretty major mental health issues. And I'm trying to decipher what is a spiritual awakening, right? 
versus what is my human bitch you need to take some medication right i think there's like a really interesting and it takes a lot what that looks like boots on the ground in terms of the health of an individual right but i know that my health needs a holistic approach i definitely need you know some good old-fashioned meds right yeah. i definitely need to be moving my body you know moving in a spiritual way dancing like fluttering from activity to activity and my body needs to be in movement right but i also need stillness right and i need to continue to ask for help and ask people for what i need but a lot of the things that I use to calm myself are spiritual tool tools. If I'm feeling insecure, I carry an evil eye, <laughs> as you can see, I carry an evil eye with me, right? If I'm feeling like I need to call on a specific orisha for protection, I will wear the herbs that coordinate with that orisha. So my own health and well-being is holistic, yes, but a lot of it is centered on the way in which I practice my spirituality for my own personal well-being and safety. You have been, so like Santeria seems to be playing a huge role in your spiritual practice right now, but is that, is, was that your access point? Is that how you started out with all this or was it something else? It was not my access point. I've been practicing Santeria probably for about three or four years now at this point. But I was a very young pagan witch, right? And I was in high school and I really liked crystals and smoke yeah. and candles and all these little tools that went around with being witchy. I just did not know how to use them yet. I.e. that time that I set my room on fire because I lit too many candles because oh, I thought no. I was being quote unquote. Oh no, you're frozen again. I so you set your room on fire and you thought you were being quote unquote. Witchy. Oh, okay, cool. I had no idea what that meant at the time. I just thought the tools were pretty and shiny, and I loved the, you know, the craft movie idea of Big a Witch. That's you, yeah, okay. Um, which is how we all start. Right, of course. I mean, I feel like as much as I'm like a, a stuffy, you know, grimoire kid these days, like, at the beginning, it was all just sort of, you know, reading the house with the clock and its walls or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, just general ideas of witchiness seems really very cool to people, right? Yeah. And so, okay, so you start off with, like, crystals, candles, fire hazards, all that, and then... <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you sort of get deeper into it? Like, what's what what was sort of your thing of, like, what was your moment of saying, oh, I'm actually, I'm in this now. This isn't just sort of like a fun, cool thing. This is a thing that I'm like hooked into. In, right. I don't think that came to me until I started practicing Santeria. Mm. Because I realized that one of the things that was missing from my pagan practice was actually calling on my own ancestors. And that was something that I was missing before Santeria. My godmother within the practice was just reminding me that part of my lineage, part of me getting connected to my spiritual side is getting connected to my ancestors, getting connected to the dead. So being a independent pagan practitioner, reading books, watching movies, touching yeah. materials, I wasn't able to connect really until I started working with my own ancestors. So when I speak to new witches, I, you know, white, black, purple, gray, pink, whatever. I'm yeah. like, get to your lineage. Who is past, who feels present for you? Work with them, right? So that was what was missing for me as a younger witch, just the connection to my family line within what I believe in practice. How difficult was it making that connection? Because I feel like, you know, different people have different challenges, but also I think a lot of, it's weird because like, I feel like there are, 20,000 how-to books out there about, you know, casting spells or uh, burning things or what have you. But, like, ancestor stuff, like, I've seen, like, five books on that maybe floating around. And I had to be an older mm. person to even hear about all that. So, like, how did you how did you go about it? Was it just sort of, did your, 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 your godmother help you out with all of that? Or was it, like, just, a, like, an inward searching? Like, what, what did that look like? It definitely looked like having a guide, right? So my godmother 
in my spiritual practice. I've known her for many years. And then she started to approach me as, let's not just be friends. Let's talk more about what it looks like for you to step into your spirituality, right? So it looks like getting a guide, like an earthly guide, right? And I think what I'm finding too is just a lot of other witches, right, that also work with their ancestors in ways that you can't necessarily find in books have been so incredibly informative to me. So really the bigger key about ancestry work has been community, finding the people in the community who as a collective group or as individuals really tap into what their history looks like. I will say that this is more challenging for a black person because we are not taught our lineage. We are not given the tools and researches like, you know, resources to find our families. So we do have to rely on spirit. We have to rely on the feeling. We have to rely on some shattered history stuff that people may tell you about your uncle Mason or may tell you about like your grandpa Bill, but there's some secrets, right? So it's been a little bit harder for me to get the exact details of my lineage because my family is full of secret keepers and some Mm. of the secrets are ugly and I get it. But having the truth of what's going on with my family makes it easier for me to connect with the ones who have already passed away. You mentioned that I think the the first person you sort of spoke to in terms of your ancestral line was your grandmother. How close were you to before they before they passed on was it sort of like you had a big foundation to work on or was it like it all sort of happens in spirit i i was very fortunate i had a lot of foundation to work on my grandmother basically raised me and my mother as sisters right so my grandmother has always been the matriarchal figure in my life she came to live with me when i was about four or five years old and passed away when i was in high school so i always had a connection with her whether or not she was living with me or not, you know, she was my original mother. <laughs> yeah. So it, connecting with her was not very difficult, aside from the feelings that came up about connecting with her, right? So I tell my clients when they are getting in touch with their spirit ancestors, you are human and you are spiritual. There are some days that I miss my grandmother so much, my chest hurts and I can't breathe. And she's been yeah. gone for 15 years. Yeah. On those days, I'm very human. I miss her physical touch. So I can't work with her as a spirit because I'm still grieving. And grief yeah. is just an ongoing process. And it's just very different for everyone. The days that I feel more secure about her being gone because I still feel her here, that's mm-hmm. when I can really work with her spirit, right? So I tell people to make boundaries with spirit. Sometimes you can feel your dead person real close to you. And you got to kind of turn to them and say, I get it. You're guiding me. But right now on a human plane, you are too close. I need to grieve you. You need to step back. Right. And, you know, if they're your guides, if they're your ancestors, they're not going very far. But it's really important that you even learn how to communicate boundaries with spirit as you are working with them. I remember I talked to somebody a while back and the sort of metaphor that popped up almost was the idea of working with your dead via kind of office hours. Yes. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Like, oh, like, no, no, no. Now's not a good time. You come to me on Tuesdays. That's the day. Thank you. And that's really important because as a spiritual human who also has a lot of dealings with mental health, I have to take breaks, right? I live in the motherland of New Orleans. It is lit energetically, spiritually, every single day. So I have to take time off because I have to remember that I'm a human that needs to sleep and eat. Even though I'm a real powerful spiritual ass bitch, I still live on this plane and I still have to take care of myself as a human. So scheduling time to work with your ancestors and your guides and your angels and whomever, really important so that you can balance and regulate your sense of self while you are still working with these spirits. Speaking of that, actually... So when when we first met, you were living in New York City. Yes. What transition been like between? Because I feel like, you know, there are hubs in this country for people like us, but like New Orleans is the big, you know, that's the that is the New York of witchy folk. So like, what was that move like for you? Ooh, that's a good question. So I have to say that I was very called to New Orleans. 
Now, if you talk to people who live in New Orleans who are not from there, they will say the same thing about being called. So I had a client who had just moved from New Orleans. New Orleans kept coming up, right? Like in yeah. readings, on the street, in my sleep. And I was like, I've ne I had never even been to New Orleans. And it just kept coming up for me. So I took this client and she told me that her house that she used to live in is becoming available. So when I went to go visit New Orleans, I went to that house and now that's the house that I live in. I moved down to New Orleans with not a lot of stuff, not a lot of money. I had my cat at the time, rest in peace, sorry. And we moved into this place together. I didn't really know a whole lot of people, but I knew that I was being very intentionally called to do the tarot work that I do in New Orleans. And I'm still unpacking what the call looks like because I didn't think that I would start creating my own tarot deck. I didn't even know I could draw that well. Yeah. I didn't know that I was gonna create oils. I have so much peace and serenity in creating oils and cooking. All of these things that my grandmother used to do that was a part of her magic have come out so big and full in New Orleans because I have the time and the space. You know, one of my biggest things about moving to New Orleans from New York was the ability and the right to take up more space as oh a black non-binary femme person. Yeah. So I've managed to do that. But I will say that, you know, New Orleans, I need a break from it. Right now I'm in Maryland taking that break, right? Okay. It, very loud, very intense, particularly for us who practice this every day, who hear spirit every day. I need yeah. a break from this place that I have now started to call home. But the move to New Orleans was the best idea and action that I've taken in my life at this point to just define what independence looks like for me, what yeah. ask help looks like for me while being independent, and also just letting myself very freely step into the way that I want to grow as a healer, a practitioner, as like a mama, as a witch, as a kinky <laughs> person, all of it. Do you find just as someone who is in the business of tarot and things like that, because it seems like, you know, as someone on the outside, it looks like New Orleans is, is the sort of place where there's more demand for tarot readers, but there are also just more tarot readers, mm. you know, giving you the sharp part of the elbow every day. So, like, is it an easier life as a professional down there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at that. <laughs> well, I know. Um, I, no, no, no. We, yeah, yeah. You hear the yearning in my voice, right? <laughs> I hear you, yes. It is not easier. It's actually a lot harder, right? Because it's, it's one of those things where there's a lot of us. So we have community, which is great. But people still think of tarot as kind of a marginalized profession. You know, like we're not promised 401ks. You know, we're just reading on the streets or reading in a shop or reading out of our homes or whatever. Yeah. So it's difficult to apply commerce and capitalism, right, to a divination form and allow that to be what supports you. So the other practitioners who I've worked in shops with, who I've made friends with, we struggle continuing to make this work a living, which is why we are always brainstorming new products, new workshops. How can we make sustainability happen while yeah. we're doing the spiritual work? But a lot of us are, you know, there's some witches that are very competitive, right, that the kind of the domly dom witch, you know, I've been ordained by this and read these many books and been to this island and la la la, all yeah, legitimate, yeah. versus newer witches who are like, look, I'm just trying to figure out what this is. And like, I don't want it to be a competition. I don't want to cut anyone down to, to move up. So it, it feels to me like a twofold kind of world, right? Yeah. And New Orleans itself, as someone who is Black, <laughs> I was so affected by Katrina, even though I was not a part of it. Yeah. And I see the ripple effects of Katrina in the wave of gentrification that's now happening in New Orleans. So we're all sort of struggling with at least the New Yorkers, I will say, the transplants from New York to New Orleans. We were all like, oh, cool. It's going to be a lot easier to live. There are definitely some aspects about the big easy that yeah. make living easy, er. But there's still the whole concept of affordable housing 
and shops that treat you decently as a reader, shops that will pay you decently as a reader. There's still struggles between the readers that read in Jackson Square outside versus the readers that read in the French Quarter inside, right? So, you know, I think what I have found is that creating community and being able to have a place to vent and express and support each other, even if that looks like someone got some really good food from the food bank and we can all bring one item, let's have dinner together because that's how we're supporting ourselves tonight, right? That's been the beautiful gem that I have found with other practitioners in Louisiana, just the ability to freely give and share in a way that makes everyone feel happy and balanced. That's really wonderful because I feel like, you know, there's there's like a witchcraft community in New York, but it feels very scattered or like modular. I don't want to say clickish because that sounds more negative than I want to go. But I mean, like, you know, it's like these people know these people, these people know these people. And there's like a small yeah. like, like node of connection. No one can see this because it's audio, but I'm making a hand gesture that kind of requires <laughs> like a narrow connector. But also kind of looks right. like I'm doing the, the biting dance from an early They Might Be Giants video. And that's that's fine. So <laughs> actually, this is so like this is the opposite end of that struggle, right? Because like that's about like making ends meet what we were just talking about. But like when you first started doing this for money and as a professional, did you did you have any like qualms about the idea of like, here's a spiritual thing, but I'm going to do it as a means of making money. So like that like idea of like what's going to make this work. Is that going to like confuse things or complicate things in a in a negative way? Was that a worry? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in my fair fair beginnings, I was like, I don't understand how people can charge for spiritual services. Like, I don't think money or commerce should be involved in that at all, which is my first theory. Yeah. Then I started reading cards and I started working with other practitioners and I started going to the ceremonies that are common within my spiritual practice of Lakumi or Santeria. Yeah. And I saw the labor, the effort, the time, the money, the food, all of it that went into supporting the priest practice. And I looked at how much the priests and the spiritualists were doing. I wish that I could just hand out free readings and change people's lives without any money involved. But I have to eat. I have to support myself. So it started to make more sense to me to apply, you know, a charge, a fee, money, monetizing, accountability through money when it comes to the practice because of the kind of labor that I put into the work. When you say accountability through money, do you mean you being accountable to the client or the client being accountable to you? Sometimes it is the client being accountable to me, right? And most of the time it's the accountable, the client being accountable to me. So I always take, in my private practice, I always take my money up front. Here's why. Sometimes your client is not going to be happy about what you have said to them. But the guarantee for you is that you have gotten money for your time and labor in whatever conversation your client allows you to have with them. Yeah. I tell my clients straight up, my spirits will not allow me to bullshit or lie to you with what I see in the cards. But I also check in with myself and the energy across from me about what that client is ready to hear. I am yeah. not one that wants to send you until some kind of full-blown psychotic episode by showing you some stuff in the cards that I see that you are not ready for. But regardless of what I say, what I do in the session, you still need to pay me for my time. Okay. That makes, yeah. Like I, I, when I first started doing this for money, I got very nervous about it and then had to sort of go on the complete other track and just be like, listen, Cooper, be a good Marxist. It's labor. Labor is entitled to all it creates, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you were a plumber, you would charge parts in labor. Why aren't you doing that now? Oh, no. Am I back yet? Yeah, you're back. I hear you. Okay, solid. Honestly, it's better that I was frozen because I just made a comment about Marxism that I feel like is not, you know, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but what was I going to Some Something I was going to say. Lakumi, right, Lakumi. So, yeah. did you find, because, okay, so you said you've been doing Lakumi for about four years. Three you moved four to years. New- and you moved to New Orleans three, two years ago? Oh, no, I moved to New Orleans about, like, two Julys ago. So, like, oh, it's been about yeah. almost two years. Okay, so did you find that your connection to, to Lakumi or, or Sanctuary, did you find that that got stronger when you went down there? Or did you Absolutely. have to take it with you? Okay. So, so like, moving down to New Orleans, I received what we call in Lakumi warriors. 
So you are now allowed to offer and bring some Orisha into your home, right? So I have representations of Orisha in my home. I would not have been able to do it the way that I do it in New Orleans, in New York. Honestly, because sometimes that just has to do with space. If I yeah. have to have my Olegua Orisha by the door, but like my apartment is so strange and weird that it just doesn't work, right? Having yeah. the space to be able to do that really up the ante in terms of me bringing my Orisha into my home to guide and work with me. There are tons of Lakumi and Santeria practitioners in and throughout the South, right? Lakumi can be shrouded in secrecy because there are a lot of practices and ceremonies that we just can't talk about all the details of, right? But yeah. we all recognize each other when we see each other because we have these distinct markers on us, i.e., particular jewelry, particular colors, particular energy, that is very clear that we're working with the Orisha. Yeah. So this has very much expanded my practice. And even things like moving to a place where I can walk to the river, that has expanded my practice so right. much because I'm a, such a water baby. I work with water. I work yeah. very closely with an Orisha called Oshun. She is the Orisha of the rivers. She's the Orisha of the sweet things and honey. And she's also very sassy, right? And we want to think like Beyonce's yellow, right? Um, being able to be so close to the river because Oshun is the owner, the Orisha of the rivers, I've gotten to be so connected with Oshun in a way that I wouldn't have been in New York where kind of getting to a body of water can be a physical hassle. And also the water is just not fun to be around. It's not fun to be around. It's also cold as the dickens. I can't do snow anymore. <laughs> not doing it, right? But right. just being able to listen to the wind, walk to the river, listen to what spirit is telling me to do in terms of how I move through the city, I hear it louder and I hear it really clear in New Orleans. And that is why the draw was so strong for me. You mentioned that in addition to Lukumi, you've also started getting more invested in hoodoo and stuff like yes. that. Would yes. you, how did you get into, because it feels like everyone's getting into hoodoo right now a little bit, but I feel like if you're in New Orleans, like, it's going to be, it's just going to be there, right? Yeah, or right, like, right. <laughs> how did that, so what, what made, what sparked the match on that one? So, A, I just want to say that it's just hysterical that we say things like people are, like, getting into hoodoo, right? I'm like, Ugh, you know, spiritual practice is not a sweater. It's not a season, right? right? Yeah, that's yeah. just how that's showing up, right? And I will say that I am very new to hoodoo, right? I just started making oils and working closely with herbs and enchanting oils with prayers and songs. And this just happened kind of like I was like, oh, I'm suddenly interested in herbs. Oh, I'm suddenly interested in what, what does this do? What does that do? Not understanding that really what I'm doing is root work. I'm looking at how the resources of the earth can be conjured, fostered, generated, and enchanted in the yeah. things that I create, right? I had to have someone else outside of my circle, you know, in the spiritual community be like, you're doing root work right now. You are, there's some kind of connection that you have to hoodoo, right? Yeah. And so I have started to work, I just got hired at Crescent City Conjure, which Congrats. is in my neighborhood, thank you, in my neighborhood of the Marini. And they are a hoodoo shop, very specifically, right? So okay. again, I've worked at a pagan shop. I've worked at a voodoo shop. I've worked at just like a generic shop around tarot. And this is my first hoodoo shop. So yeah. I'm more so learning about hoodoo in the way that I'm already doing some of the things that are covered in hoodoo that I didn't yeah. know I was doing. So I'm still investigating more and more about what that looks like. So I don't know if I can necessarily speak to hoodoo in a professional way that I feel comfortable with in terms of experience. Totally fine. But I will say that working with herbs, working with roots, there's just something about that connection that I it electrifies me and I really feel the connection when I'm getting in touch with these herbs and making these products based on what spirit is telling me to put into what I'm creating. So since I'm getting to say your approach to hoodoo it's not the kind of, like, if we, like, went in the way, way back machine to you in high school, like, it's not, like, getting the books and, and reading the things. It's more, no. like, a much more intuitive. I, I am seeing that I'm being led there, 
right? Yeah. Like, it's not like I was intentional about I'm going to practice hoodoo. It's just what's showing up, right? So I'm still a newbie. I just don't want to say too much about hoodoo because I don't know a ton about it. I'm just reaching for the books, just yeah. reaching for the resources and people to get to know. But I think what's beautiful about spirituality is that if you just really let yourself go, if you really just trust your gut instinct, you literally will be led to whatever it is that you're supposed to be led to. It's just the biggest, hardest part for people is actually trusting their gut instinct. Have you, because I mean, clearly you're, you're good at trusting it now, but like yeah. when you were younger, was that hard? Very that hard. What did you do to, to break down that barrier? So A, again, this is where community comes in, right? I yeah. learned from the sex workers, the practitioners in my life to trust my body. Mm. If my body feels something, it is real, <laughs> right? Like, because it's real for me. So I wasn't always trusting in my own intuition because I didn't know whether it was my gut intuition or paranoia. Mm. So I'm learning what it sounds like for me to turn down the volume on my logical brain that is yeah. fed with anxieties and fed with paranoia and listen to literally my moon pit, my gut, right? Mm -hmm. Making a decision about something. If my stomach, if my gut doesn't feel right about that, then I say no because I'm learning to trust my body so much, right? So it's been quite the process. There are still some times where I'm like, oh man, I should have listened to my gut instinct on that one, right? Yeah. It, I'm, I'm human, but... I think what I'm finding is that when I listen to my gut and I give it the space to be loud enough to tell me how to move in the world, I can let go of some of these anxieties and fears, or I can just move forward with the anxiety and fear while listening to my gut, having the volume of my own gut instinct override my paranoid logical thinking. Yeah. And it's, the daily dance. <laughs> it's just yeah. such a balance. And I just try to stay on even footing when it comes to both planes. So it's a, it's a, it's more of a practice than an awakening moment. It's like practice, you know? Yeah. And I think even for my clients right now, we're working a lot of money magic. All of us are like, Oh, where's the money coming from? We need the money. Right. Yeah. And they've, you know, my friends have been saying, I'm no, I don't think I'm getting any results. And I'm like, okay, so working money magic and you, let's say, getting 25 cents off of something that you didn't expect to get that much off of, that's money magic, right? It's small, but it's something. It's an indication that what you're doing is making things move. Yeah. So it's kind of how I work with my gut instinct as well. Like I find ways to appreciate these little moments where I was like, ooh, I did trust myself on that small, small thing. And yeah. I know that if you can do it on the small, small thing, I can do it on a much bigger plane. So we're coming up on about an hour now. So I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to like, you know, you've been so generous with your time. Like I don't want to like. Thank you. You're, you're fine. With it. But if there was something that you wanted people like sort of like a last like parting, like nugget of a thing for people to take away from this or like, like advice that maybe you wish you'd heard, let's say mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago, 20 okay. years ago. Um, <laughs> a thousand years ago in a past life that you can then retain and break, you know, like yeah. what is, what is something you would want to tell all the folks listening in, in radio land or what have you? God, that's corny. I should edit that out. But what would you want to tell people? I would say, um, practice what you preach, right? If you have an idea, a theory, a thought about something that you want to share, make sure that you are practicing it, right? Walk with fear, okay? Particularly for these really powerful female-bodied humans that I work with, right? But also these two-spirit, non-binary people. We are powerful as all holy F-U-C-K. And it's yeah. very scary. So pacing ourselves, being good in terms of self-care, really important. But finding your community is so incredibly vital. And I know a lot of us witches are like, I'm a weirdo. There's no one else out there like me. And I'm like, well, whatever planet you are from, there's someone else on this planet who's from that planet. Find yeah. those people and work with them so that you know that you are not alone, right? 
if you are tempted to discover something, if you're interested in stuff, take classes, read books, talk to people, but don't rely on that information alone. Really make sure that whatever you're practicing really feels good in your body and makes you feel connected, right? And, yeah. you know, last thing I'd say is, like, if magic empowers you, if it heals you, if it entertains you, if it, if it keeps you from falling into deep depressions, but it also keeps you from, like, really losing it out there in the streets, like, use it. You know, yeah. if whatever works, use that. If it doesn't work, then use something else. Hell yeah. Amazing. So if people want to get in touch with you, maybe get a reading, maybe check out some products, where should they go? What should they do? You can find me on Facebook under Black Unicorn Tarot. That is, um, I have a Facebook page about that. And then on Instagram, you can find me at Black Unicorn Rise. I am <laughs> in the process of getting a little bit more technologically sound. So I will be launching a official website within the new year. But for now, you can find me on Facebook at Black Unicorn Tarot and on Instagram at Black Unicorn Rise. Feel free to message me if you are interested in readings for the new year. I'd be happy to talk to you about price points. But also, I always offer sliding scale for queer, trans, and people of color. And those are my clients that take priority. Amazing. Thank you. So actually, before we stop, yeah. one last thing. You mentioned you were making a tarot deck. <laughs> um, can we talk about that for like five minutes before you, before you go? I, <laughs> I'm really glad that you're making me talk about this. So I've been reimagining the tarot deck. I'm realizing that this deck is very personal to me and my own story. But yeah. there are not a lot of decks that represent black people and black queer people. So yeah. that is what my goal is with this deck. Honestly, I just started channeling my grandmother because she was a, an artist and I just started just sketching and drawing these drawings, right? So I have been really attached to my version of the strength card. She is the sex worker. And I've made some products around some cleanses, some disrobing oil, i.e. bringing your energy back to yourself after you have had a sexual partner. That's what the yeah. disrobing oil does. And just celebrating and embracing the trials, tribulations, and extreme politics and dangers that sex workers have to encounter. So for right. me, sex workers represent strength. But I'm still in the process of working on my major arcana, right? For instance, like the Hierophant is Audrey Lord, right? That's just my understanding of who is guiding the brown folks in my life in terms of queerness and writing and exploring really these in-depths these in-depth concepts that are hard to look at, right? So my tarot deck is something that I'm playing with and still developing. Yeah. I definitely hope that it'll become something on the shelf that's accessible for all the brown folks in my life and everybody else who supports and follows. But it's a bit of a journey, and I'll just yeah. be sort of launching cards and products as I'm called to do so. But the hope is that I am able to create an entire tarot deck that is dedicated to brown and queer people. That's amazing. That sounds really lovely. Thank you. And cool. Looking forward to that. And amazing. Thank you so much for, for, for doing you are this. Welcome. This, was, this was fabulous. Uh, this was a joy. Thank you so much to Ashton. If you want to learn more or reach out, you can check out Black Unicorn Tarot on Facebook and find them on Instagram at Black Unicorn Rise. So that's our show. Uh, thanks to Ashton and Frank. Uh, be sure to check out the next big show where I'll be talking to local magical fixture, out in Jersey columnist and big brain behind the big book of magic, Leon Calafiore. If you pop over to the Patreon, there will also be a Patreon-only episode tomorrow or the day after, answering a listener question about the devil and rams. If you have any questions for our research department, be sure to send those via Twitter or Instagram at witchhassle at cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle or via the Patreon. And don't forget to rate the show since that apparently helps it get found, I'm told, and I've decided to take that on faith. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee from an alcove in the main branch of the New York City Public Library. This has been Witch Hassle. Good luck with the work ahead. Mm -hmm.